Welcome to Right Now Workshop Podcast, where you can write a book and change the world. I'm your host, Kitty Buholtz, and this is episode 132, Creating Depth from Within, an interview with Suzanne Woods Fisher, coming to you on Thursday, March 14th, 2019. Okay, one thing I have to say about podcast episodes. I, as a podcast listener, am a big fan of podcast numbers. I want to know which episode I'm on. Is this the fourth episode and it's a brand new podcast? Do I not realize that there are 700 episodes in the podcast that I'm listening to and I just came in at episode 702? I want to know where I'm at. I want to know how to find the other ones easily and not have to read every single title to find the one that someone Someone told me you have to listen to the episode called, you know, I Love Gorillas or whatever. But uh, sadly, sometimes you just have to do what you have to do. So apparently, Apple has decided that podcast episode numbers are not something that they want in the podcast title anymore. So if you're wondering, wait, what episode number am I on? I'm not even sure. Did I listen to this one yet or not? I apologize. Not my fault. I do have to follow the regulations or else my podcast could get pulled. And then how would you listen to it? So what I'm going to do is try to find another place to put the podcast number. Probably it'll be the first line of the text that shows up if you're listening in the podcast app. Um, So all of the show notes will show up in the podcast app, no matter how long or short. uh, Links to the author that I'm interviewing or the company of the person that I'm interviewing or whatever, all that stuff will always be in the show notes, both on my website, which is podcast.rightnowworkshop.com, or in the show notes when you're listening to the podcast on the app. So if you're one of those people also who are like, but where are we at? Have I just started listening to a brand new podcast? Do I need to go listen to 140 episodes before this one? Now you know, you and I can rest easy. (laughs) But in the meantime, this will be the first episode that I'm moving forward without putting the number in the title. That being said, The title of this episode is very interesting to me. It took me a few minutes to try to figure out what should I title this because this is the second time that I got to talk to Suzanne and she just has this depth and richness to her that is no no doubt at all how it ends up on the page because you can see it and hear it when you're talking to her. And so of all the things that we were talking about during this particular interview, I was like, you know what? It's really about depth of story and depth of character and pulling from the depth of yourself, finding the things in yourself that these are the stories that you can tell really better than anyone else, or certainly better than all of the other choices that you have for different kinds of stories that you could tell. So I really hope that you uh, have some time to just sit and relax and listen to this episode. Think about how the things that Suzanne and I are talking about apply to you in your writing. Um, I, I got another kind of nudge that, you know what, even if you think that you don't know what you're doing, you just need to start putting words on the page every day, even if the words are, and it's funny because I was teaching a writing class. What was it? I think it was two weeks ago now, not one. And, um, and I told my students, it was such a practice what you preach moment for me. I told my students, sometimes you just have to start writing. You just have to start writing and write, I don't know what I'm writing about and I'm frustrating because I don't know where I'm going and blah, blah, blah. And I said, if you, I told them, if you set a timer for five minutes, by the time the timer goes off, you'll have probably already found the thing that you are trying to say and you'll be like, hold on one second, not done. 
And one of the women in class was like kind of rolling her eyes and shaking her head like, yeah, that's not going to happen with me. And I set the timer. I think it was only three minutes that night. And uh, sure enough, it went off and she started giggling and raised her hand and was like, hold on a second, because <laughs> it worked. So I'm just saying there's always advice that will help you no matter what it is that you're struggling with. For me, right this second, it's working on a new story that I've never written anything like this before. And I think that there's a part of my brain that's scared. And so it's like, oh, I don't know what to write. So I'm not going to write anything. So there you go. Now, <laughs> between the, the intro to the interview and the interview itself, you should have all sorts of things that will help you with um, with whatever you're writing, whatever the, the thing is that you need a little nudge. This is a great episode. You're really going to love um, all the things that we talked about and how just really encouraging it was. And if you haven't read Suzanne's books, I encourage you to, to try a couple of those too. I've read two now because I've interviewed her twice and they really do have this depth to them that make me feel like, oh, I think that I know these people or they probably are my neighbors. They, they just feel recognizable to me. And it always makes me feel like, yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to do in my books. It's why some of my books don't actually fit very neatly into a genre, you know, to have uh, you know, superheroes who are Christians who also, you know, do a little bit of cursing, which in my mind is totally normal for the, <laughs> the kind of people that I hang out with every day. Um, okay, I don't actually hang out with superheroes, but they might be secretly superheroes. I mean, they're super cool people, so there's that. Okay, obviously, I am very excited. My brain is all um, on this little creative bend now after talking with another writer for an hour. So I'm going to be quiet and let you listen. And please let me know if there was something that was so encouraging about this episode that it got you, you know, over a hump or you know, past something that was holding you back or just felt encouraging. Let's let Suzanne know too. I would love for my guests to know that the listeners are really uh, appreciating their words of wisdom and advice and encouragement. Have a great week. We will talk to you later. And let's say that you and I both are going to spend at least five minutes with a timer going. And you know what? Your problem may not be that uh, you can't figure out how to get started <laughs> or, or, or to keep going. Um, but whatever your, your issue is today, whatever your writing problem, for lack of a better word, let's say challenge, whatever your writing challenge is today, Let's just say that by next week, we'll both have tried at least something to get through the, the, the problem, the challenge, the challenge that we're facing, and, um, and we'll see where we got. Let's talk again next week and have a fabulous, fabulous week. I love you guys. Today's guest is Suzanne Woods Fisher. Suzanne is an award-winning, best-selling author of more than two dozen novels, including Phoebe's Light, Minding the Light, and The Light Before Day, as well as the series Amish Beginnings, The Bishop's Family, and The Inn at Eagle Hill. She is also the author of several nonfiction books about the Amish, including Amish Peace and The Heart of the Amish. She lives in California. Welcome, Suzanne. Hi, Kitty. Thanks for having me here today. It's so good to have you back. You were here in October talking about strong Quaker women. Yeah. And now here we are in March talking about the Amish, which is actually, if I remember correctly, the Amish is where you have most of your experience? Yes, I do. I've written for Revell Books for almost 10 years now about the Old Order Amish, starting with a nonfiction, which kind of opened the door 
to write credible fiction, I felt. You know, it was almost like my foundation book, this book called Amish Peace. And from that, but, and, but to back up even further, the reason I've written about the Old Order Amish is because my grandfather was raised plain. So I have a family connection that is authentic and, you know, meaningful to me to go kind of beyond the bonnets and buggies and beards and to look at what really does make a difference in, um, in being Amish. What is it that kind of, what do they have to teach us? And I'm not trying to make them perfect people, but just the idea that there's something they've got that I think we could really use in this modern day. Yeah. A uh, sense of life being able to be simple if we will make the right changes. Well, that's a great point because I think the simple living is what draws people. It's, it seems so appealing. But I think it's more than that. And certainly there is an appeal of simplifying your life. I mean, that, that's always, always a good thing. But let me give you an example. In the 1920s, now the Amish are, um, there's not, there's a standalone churches and there's about 1900 standalone churches. So every wow. single Amish church has their own lead church leadership, their own community. So you get a lot of variation because there's not a hierarchy. Ah. That's what I think makes it really fun to write about them. And, and we can talk more about this book I'm, that's coming out, Mending Fences, because I, I took an even different turn there a little bit. But they're, they're so unique and different in their own way, though they share some cardinal values. But it, in the 1920s, they did gather to make a decision about the telephone, because it was starting to make its headway into families and homes and in the 1920s and the 1930s. And they made a decision at that point that they, they thought if they allowed a phone inside a house, that it would interrupt family life. Ah. So they do have telephones, but they have them outside in a shanty. And if you drive along the country roads, you'll see them. They almost look like an outhouse. But they maybe three or four families on a lane will share the phone and a message machine. And they just go through and once a day, twice a day, they'll check messages and make their phone calls. But Kitty, think about that and the fact that it's not that they're denying the technology, but they're putting the brakes on it to preserve home life. Yeah. That's the principle, I think, that they have to teach us. I mean, when you think of the proliferation of smartphones now and how many times have you been in a restaurant and everybody, you know, they're just glued to the screen. Yeah. I have a 10-month-old granddaughter and she's 10 months old and she... She knows something about that phone and presses her little chubby fingers on the screen. You know? Oh my goodness. So wow. those are the things about them that I love, like to pull into just our ordinary daily life. Simplicity, but really more than that, kind of principles. Yeah. Now I've only written, uh, written I've only read uh, one of your Amish books, Mending Fences, the one that just came out in February, uh, which is book one of, what's the name of the series again? The Deacon's Family. The Deacon's Family, right. Mm -hmm. Here it is. Oh, yay. If you're watching on YouTube, beautiful cover. I love this cover. And we need to come back to the cover because I remember whether that was, that was kind of a, a new feature, something that yes. was done there. Um, but so the thing that I liked so much about your book, um, I've read a few other Amish romances for various reasons, either judging a contest or, you know, having a guest on the show or whatever. And, um, and they're very nice and they're very sweet. And, you know, it's, a, it's an Amish romance. The ones that I read, that's what it is. It's Amish and it's romance. But 
Mending Fences is not that. It's like a book that is a story of people that you can imagine to be real, people who might live, you know, just a few miles down the road. I'm so glad you said that because I've always tried to write books that, re that to me reflect the people I've met, you know, my relatives, as well as the connections I've made. So for one example is I don't do that um, almost Spanglish. I don't do Penn Dutch and English together because I don't hear Amish people talking like that. They don't, <laughs> they don't suddenly say wonderbar kitty, you know, that's just not, that's just not the way they are. But that's, that is not to criticize other authors, but that's a common part. And so if you don't like that, I, mean, I feel like sometimes don't sweep my books away because they're really a, a different kind of a take on the old order Amish, but I hope a genuine one. Mending Fences is actually a story about a young man who has been in other books I've written. Um, the last book, in fact, he was called The Devoted, and his name is Luke Schrock, and he was always on the edge, like always just pushing the envelope. And at the end of The Devoted, his behavior had gotten so out of control that he really scared himself. And so he exits stage left, heading to rehab, which probably sounds funny because you wouldn't think necessarily that the Amish partake in rehab. But over the last five, 10 years, I've noticed when I've been back there and in the newspapers I read about the Old Order Amish, they have their own newspapers, um, that there are facilities that have been that are, are for the Mennonite and Amish communities, including counselors who speak Penn Dutch. Faith is an integral part of the healing. It's not just healing the body physiologically, mm -hmm. even the mind. It's also including the spirit in healing with this too. And so they actually do partake in it. And I have met some families where one young uh, like a 13 year old boy had lost his brother in an accident and he really he took it very, very hard and was starting to have, I think, some clinical depression that was frightening to the parents. So he actually went to the facility for a while and was really bolstered and healed and returned home in a, a much better place. So they do partake. I'm not saying all of them do, but there are these facilities and this is where the, the idea for Luke came about. So as Mending Fences gets started, he is now fresh out of rehab. Actually, three tries, <laughs> which is typical, you know, with addiction. Yeah. Three tries, and he's finally coming out. And his bishop, this bishop named David Stoltzfus, who's um, a very wonderful bishop, and he's a model after a gentleman, an Amish bishop I met in Ohio, who I just think the world of. And most Amish bishops tend to be like these dogmatic, patriarchal, you know, stern, rigid, black and white, literal. And that's just not, I have met some like that, but that's just not the one I wanted to represent. Yeah. So this David Stoltzfus has picked Luke up from the rehab clinic and he is really wanting Luke to come back to the community to face his demons in a way. He feels Luke will never be able to move on until he's really ready to to settle and face and acknowledge what he has done and be healed in this community. And that's where the story starts. Yeah. And I have to say that the whole idea of, 
um, it never really occurred to me one way or the other um, that the Amish or um, any other kind of separate community does or doesn't uh, deal with addiction. I hadn't thought about that at all. But when I was reading the, the back cover copy for your book, and I told you, I said, okay, hold on a second, Amish and rehab, I, and then coming back and, and having to make amends, like, I need, to, I need to read this book and have you on the show and talk about it, because it's so, um, it's, to me, it's so not what I would expect in Amish fiction, because it sounds like real life in a way that I don't generally um, get when I read just the blurbs for an Amish romance. Yeah, I think there's a lot. And, and again, this is the writing I like to, to do. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, and like you, not that I am in any way denigrating the others. They are some sweet, lovely stories yeah. and very romantic. And I, and I really like them. I'm just saying this is very different and unexpected. Yes. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and probably, um, yeah, I, I agree. But this, this, I think, is a book that could be, could be true to a lot of what is at the heart of being Amish, which is the forgiveness story. And I, that's what I just find so um, personally convicting. You know, I, I can't read about, I can't study and learn more about the Old Order Amish without feeling like this isn't just an Amish message. This, this idea of taking very seriously the Lord's Prayer other pieces of scripture that we sort of gloss over a little bit kind of fast. I mean, yeah. Kitty, for example, so yesterday was Ash Wednesday and we're, we're coming up to Easter and that is a really holy time. It really is. It's, it's a very, and the Amish take it quite seriously. It's sort of, they lead up to a time a few weeks before Easter where in the community they've asked, it's time to kind of right wrongs. And nice. if you owe money, if you owe time, if you have a grudge between someone, this is the time to kind of yeah. keep a short account and clean up. And then they don't want you taking communion until you are ready for that, wow. which I think is a powerful thought to go to the Easter, Easter day with at least to the best of our ability, our side of the street is clean. Yeah. And doing that at least once a year, maybe twice a year when they have communion and it's just a, a very meaningful thing to look at this holy season and take it more seriously. Yeah. That's the other thing that I was really surprised in your book. Um, first of all, I don't think that I would be a writer if I didn't believe this and I probably wouldn't be such a voracious reader if I didn't believe this, but I am absolutely 100% in the camp of books change lives, fiction and nonfiction both words and stories, they, they have meaning. And to accidentally say something that you're like, I wish I could take that back. I'm sorry, does cover a lot of things, but it doesn't necessarily take away the hurt that you might have inflicted. Um, I, I know that just in married life, you know, sometimes I get so frustrated and then I yell and then I'm like, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have yelled. And my husband's like, it's, it's okay. And I'm like, it's not okay for me to yell at you when I'm frustrated about something else, you know. Um, but the way that you go so deeply into um, what the bishop is asking of this young man, not just apologizing. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, and I'm glad you brought that up. So David Stoltzfus has brought Luke back into the community, and there is another man, the deacon of Stony Ridge, and all these books are set in this town of, fictitious town of Stony Ridge in Lancaster County, and Amos Lapp is now the deacon. He's agreed to allow Luke to live on his property, but he has to live in the barn because 
He's also got a, a lovely young woman living in the house with he and his wife are um, sort of allowing a young woman to come and stay at their home and he doesn't want Luke anywhere near this young woman. Um, so Luke is sent to the barn, which is you know part of the humor of the story as well. But yeah. David and Amos together have decided to ask Luke, while he is here, he needs to write down a list of the people he's harmed. And Luke went from mischief, like blowing up mailboxes, all the way to actually causing the death of an animal. You know, he, I mean, really, he was, like I said, he was getting out of control and, and he was scaring himself with his sort of reckless behavior, really lacking empathy. So they want a list of those he's harmed. And he sits down and he's agreed to that. He comes up with four names and David hands him, no, I, I think I have four pages that I can think of, <laughs> long list. And not just to ask forgiveness, but, and to tell them he's sorry, but also to ask, how did this affect you? What did this do to you? And this is the powerful part of it because this is really, I mean, in a way these were victims and they're having a voice, they're having a chance to talk. He's really sent to make amends or to mend fences as the title implies. This is from Alcoholics Anonymous, step eight and nine. Ah. And it's, you know, it's something we kind of don't ever, we look, we take, I'm sorry, like you said, when you get cross with your husband, you know, it's, it's a little too easy to just say, I'm sorry, or even, I'm sorry, I'm sorry you're mad, you know? But, yeah. but to actually say, how did it feel? What did I, what did I do? What, what caused, you know, this kind of problem? Or I don't know. It's just a, it's a powerful um, experience for Luke. Not right at first, but as, as he proceeds down his list. Yeah. Because then, he's surprised. Yeah. He's surprised. <laughs> um, he had, yeah, he was really a character lacking empathy. Um, very self-centered, very cute a charming guy. In fact, we were going to talk about the cover for one second and now might be the time to. Yeah. Because I haven't had a male on the cover before and I wasn't really sure. It's a great picture of this kind of a guy. He is cute with bright blue eyes and black hair and very good looking, very handsome. And you can see yeah. how girls just give him a pass and let him, you know, take advantage of he, um, He's hard to stay mad at kind of a guy. Yeah. So he's had things, he, there's wounds in his life too, obviously, but he has had a little too much too easily. And for the first time, he's face to face with the other side of how this has felt, especially when, in fact, I think I can say this without spoiling the story at all. There's a moment when some kids actually cause mischief to Amos Lapp's windmill farm. And for the first time, Luke sees the destruction and he's doing the cleanup and he's realizing that the building that these kids wrecked was the one that Amos had made for his wife long, long ago. And, you know, like all of a sudden the cracks of light come through into his hard shell. And he's yeah. really a, like a man in the mirror moment where he, he sees what this feels like to be recklessly, you know, vandalism. And yeah, just good. having fun, boys being boys. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So anyway, yeah. he does grow and change, not fast, it, you know, it's kind of slow, but I think he's an endearing character because he has so many different layers to him. Yeah. Not all bad, 
but he's certainly yeah. not all good. <laughs> and you know, I thought that was one of the other things that, um, so we're, it's a podcast for writers. So I'm always trying to um, make sure that we're talking about things that other writers might be able to take as, uh, as an example or as, um, you know, a writing tip or whatever. But one of the things that I also really liked about this particular story is that it was believable how incredibly long it was taking him to really begin to learn and care. And then so long, for some people, they forgave and forgot and got over it quickly. And other people, not so much, like Alice. So let's talk a little bit about Alice. Well, there's this, this character, um, Alice Smooker, and she's kind of and this is the Penn Dutch language. If it were German, it'd be smucker, like smucker's jelly. Uh -huh. But for Penn Dutch, it's smucker, you know. Oh, okay. Sometimes it's like a, it's a dialect of German, and it almost feels like a circus mirror where everything's a little bit different, you know. <laughs> but Alice Smucker is considered like dried up and on the shelf. She's in her mid-30s and kind of a fussy, fussy, bit of hypochondriac kind of a woman. She's in another book as well. And we see her again where Luke has to go and apologize to her because he did something to her a few years ago before he left for rehab where she was just leaving in her buggy and he threw a snake in her buggy thinking nothing of it. But it, you know, the horse jolted and went. And for Alice, this was the greatest fear she could ever have. She was so afraid of snakes, so afraid of them. The horse kind of just slowed down right away. So in Luke's mind, it's, and it was a harmless garden, you know, gardener snake. He, he saw nothing wrong with it other than it was amusing. But for Alice, it was the biggest fear of her life. Kitty, think about that. We all have the biggest fear of our life, you know, something that tips us. And for this, this tipped Alice into really full-blown agoraphobia. She was so fearful of snakes, she would not leave her home. That, and he had no idea. He had no idea that he had that kind of impact on her, but he sure did. And he's determined. In fact, he even gets kind of stuck on his list, going down the list, because he's so determined now. It's almost like he's swerving away from being the, the brush it off to the, I've got to fix this. I've got to make it right. And Alice doesn't want him to make it right. She wants him to leave her alone because she has no patience for him at all, hmm. but he's determined. And so little by little, and I actually had to read books about how to get over your fear of snakes. There's a phobia. Oh, cool. Alice had lots of phobias, you know, highly anxious woman. Yeah. And I found a number of different books. And for example, one of the ways you do it is you start to condition yourself slowly to something you're afraid of. So I, I have in the book, which was recommended in other books, I have Luke bringing her children's books of pictures of snakes so that just little by little, she can get past the fear and see how intricately their skin is. Or yeah. the fact that a poisonous snake has a forked tongue and a, you know, her eyes going one direction or, or, and non-poisonous, it's another. I mean, just little, little things that are actually, I mean, I'm not a snake fan, but the beauty of that creature, you know, and, and the variety of it and all, little by little, she started to feel less like just, they're all awful, they're all frightened, because farmers actually use snakes. They are, can be very valuable in the farm, in the fields and, you know, all that to keep the mice down and, you know, other rodents and all. So um, yeah. snakes are not not part of, they're not not part of, you know, the farming <laughs> life, but anyway, Luke, you know, kind of a, a funny story in that. And actually, Kitty, something really interesting is 
one of the first reviews I received for Mending Fences came up way before Amazon allowed reviews up. So I don't know how that slipped through. Okay. And it was not a good review because this woman doesn't like snakes. <laughs> that was her whole thing. <laughs> the snakes are not a huge part of the story. They're really a very little one, but it, yeah. but it was almost, almost amusing. I thought like, oh, little Alice in the, <laughs> you know. In the yeah. Oh my gosh, that would be, it would be hard not to laugh when you were reading the review going, wow, it's like Alice. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, like, wait, what are you, <laughs> you know, there's a whole book here. Yeah. Oh, That's all wow. she could see too, with snakes. Um, and, and there's neat stories, and as you mentioned, there's a number of people he did apologize to who really could take it easily, that took it in stride, you know, blowing up, putting, what did he put, like sugar in a lawnmower which was something my sister did. And so <laughs> I learned, I learned so I have two people in my life that I go to for the, the uh, troublesome teen stuff. <laughs> so sugar in a gas tank is a bad thing. And the Amish are very, they mow their lawns a lot. They are very fastidious with their beautiful yards and gardens. And so this ruined a one family's lawnmower, but the, they actually took it as, Hey, you actually did us a favor because we just got one of those hand, mowers not the gas and we've got our sons starting to mow the lawn my husband didn't have to anymore so you know there were moments that were not terrible yeah but I think even for that Luke learned a lot about himself in in this whole journey yeah now so you've got several characters I don't want to give away any of the the storylines or plot points but you've got several characters who have got a lot going on in their life so we've already explained a lot about Luke um, we've explained a little bit about Alice there are some other people who have equally dense backstories that you have really beautifully and and elegantly for lack of a better way to say it brought in so that we're really interested we feel like we really know these people even if we're not getting a lot of you know as they say screen time even if they're not on a lot of pages of the book I still feel like having not read any of the books that some of these characters have appeared in before I, I still really felt like I kind of know, knew David Stoltfus I can't say anybody's name very well and and Amos a little bit and um a couple other characters, I was like, oh, I feel like I really kind of know them. So as a writer, is this part of your writing gift? Or do you try to sit down and think of um, many of your characters' full story, even if they're only going to be in the book a short while? Like, how do you make such rich characters from so many secondary characters? Oh, that's such a nice thing to say. I appreciate that. I feel, well, David Stoltzfus did have a series called The Bishop's family. So he did come in as a minister, then became a bishop, and, and he kind of really was a full-blown. But what's interesting about David in this series is you don't, his story kind of is finished. Like in a way, he's, he is a true, strong leader in this community, which wasn't true in the series. And it wasn't that he stumbled, it was that he had a different point of view, and he kept coming into conflict with the leadership as well as he was not, he was a widower. And so there was a love story that came for him as well. So in a way, you know, from a writing point of view, David's story is, is somewhat complete. Um, so he, he is a secondary character. I think that's one of the things you look for is, is the story over for them in a way? Like, is there, or is there still a question? And yeah. Luke, there really was a question. Um, you know, I think some of the other characters 
that are a little more off screen, there's, they really, we've wrapped it up a little bit. So I, I haven't brought them forward. Uh, right now I'm finishing the third in this, this series and I'm bringing a character that has been off screen for probably two series, but he, oh, wow. he left with a question. So I want to finish him up and bring um, that character named Jimmy Fisher. That's one of my favorite characters. No relation. <laughs> but <laughs> right. but um, I think that some of it is, you know, are there questions still rolling around that yeah. aren't solved? So we talked before about your strong Quaker women and that um, I don't want to try to uh, reiterate, you know, what we said in that interview, but I was left with the sense of um, that you really admired so many of these Quaker women from history and then, you know, creating women similar to them. Um, we talked about uh, one entire town where for a part of the year or a part of a, a period of time, the women pretty much ran the town while the men were away. So now you've got all these other really deep characters. And it's interesting because they all have these beautiful strengths within them, even if they're at first seen as a person of weakness, like Alice being uh, kind of agoraphobic now, not wanting to leave her house because of this thing that happened with the snakes. And yet the fact that she is very slowly willing to grow past, you know, the things that hold her back, make her seem strong to me. So that was another thing that I really appreciated. And I was wondering, is that something that is um, kind of part of your writer's voice? Do your stories, do you think that your stories always are looking for pulling the strength out of people, maybe to show the reader that they have more strength than they realize? Gosh, Kitty, you are awesome. <laughs> <laughs> the way you word things and the way you capture them. I love untold stories of women who are ahead of their times. Like I, I just love it or out of, or outside the box a little bit. So the Quaker books you're talking about are a series set called the Nantucket legacy. And that just to clarify for readers, it's um, a series that is about Quaker Nantucket over its whaling heydays when the men left for years at a time and the women ran the Island. And they're still, even to this day that, sort of is the fabric of Nantucket society. Certainly there are men there now, but, but women run most of the newspapers and have quite a few businesses. And, and women wow. are known, they had to be strong and they rallied and they were, and they you know, ran their families, they ran businesses, they ran you know, even the politics of the town. I think it's so intriguing. And, and of course the Quakers are fascinating in how they kind of like the Amish in a way, I mean, take the Amish and forgiveness. Now let's go to the Quakers. Again, very different. They're not similar. A lot of people confuse them because mm -hmm. they historically look a little similar, but they have more differences than similarities historically and even today. The um, Quakers, with their emphasis on social justice, made, have made such an impact in our country the very notion of solitary confinement in a penitentiary comes from the Quakers. Oh. They created that idea because they believed that for a person to really change, they needed time of penance. Oh. Really penitentiary. 
And solitary confinement is a very Quaker concept. It's not meant to be a harsh punishment. It's meant originally meant to be really, you know, a time of, of character reform. They have, are huge in prison reforms. They've done so much. They have done so much with the Underground Railroad and slaves and all. Mm -hmm. So I guess like, like the impact made, getting back to your question just about women, I do, I think I do enjoy writing about women in particular who, who go against the tide and have a backbone and, and survive and do well, more than survive, make it, you know, make a difference, have ripples. Yeah. Mary Coffin Starbuck, who is in this, the one character through all three books, she's a true character on Nantucket Island, fascinating woman, amazing to me. Um, she, you know, her ripples can carry on generations later. The, work she did, the impact she had. She brought Quakerism to the Nantucket Island. A woman, you know? I mean, and she was one of the first ministers. Yeah. Wow. So when you're talking to other writers, and I don't know how often you, uh, that you do talk to writers, I know that we talked a little bit about, you know, some of your um, very cool book signing uh, places, like going to Nantucket to sign books. <laughs> um, the really so, What's that? To the Whaling Museum. That's right. Very cool. I just remember that was one of the places that after we were done talking, I was like, I need to go there and see this yeah. place. So when you talk to writers, is there any particular advice that you give them on how to create characters with depth and dimension? I mean, it's something that you do well. So I wondered if you, if you give advice on it. Well, thank you very much. I do think, I think creating a character was one thing early on in my, I used to write magazine articles, so I was a nonfiction writer, really assumed I was. I sort of always had this idea that you had to have the whole story in your head figured out before you could ever write a book, which I've never been able to do ever, you know, so I really encourage people to not feel almost like what you don't know, you don't know. It's okay to kind of just be a beginner and get started. But the best piece of advice I feel in writing is something I found in the newspaper years and years ago, and it was a birthday party for a 100-year-old woman. And they were asking her about the changes she'd seen in the last 100 years, you know, from airplanes and trains and on and on. And, and then they said, well, what is it that has caused you to live to be 100 years old? And remember, this was her birthday party. And yeah. she said, oh, I want to know what happens next. <laughs> I think that is writing in a nutshell. Like if you were to distill it down, everything needs to be pushing a reader on their toes, not on their heels. For example, really? the end of a chapter, I think is one of the most challenging things that writers should pay more attention to. Yeah. And it's so hard to do so that a writer, literal, a reader is literally forward motion. They're not, it's not done. They've got to yeah. kind of lean in and turn the page. So I, same with the character, like what happens next? Where are they going? Is this love interest or that triangle, you know, propelling you forward or, or their bad behavior or their bad habits or, or their man or woman in the mirror moments, you know, is that, right. is it taking you forward? Are they changing and growing? And, and I do love, you know, you mentioned Alice growing. I love to have characters grow and not feel like people are, are caught in a box. Yeah. With that said, you know, it's not that easy to grow. I, it's really, really hard to yeah. 
some strides in our life. And yet that's what the Holy Spirit does best. Yeah. This is such great fun talking to you. I love talking to you, especially about, you know, the characters, the, the way that you take uh, research, plus your own personal background, things that you're interested in, and you just create these other deep new stories. And I love that you have one town and everybody's interconnected in it. Yeah, that was my editor's idea. And, and at times I feel like, oh, I kind of would have enjoyed us putting the Amish here in Maine or because they're, they're moving everywhere. In fact, right. one I have a, my youngest son lives in Honduras working for a company down there. He's an expat. And sometime I'd love to go to Belize because Mennonites are there. Really? Thousands of Mennonites. Yeah. And they have, they, they're spreading out all over and where they go, they bring such community. Yeah. And then the whole Amish Mennonite, you know, German Baptist, they all have, in their DNA is coded how to take infertile land and make it fertile. They are amazing. Wow. So they go into these like Central American countries and they create community, they create economic prosperity, they are wonderful neighbors. I mean, they're just remarkable. These Mennonites of Belize had gone originally during the time of persecution in Europe to Russia where they could live in peace until socialism and then they left there fast and went to Canada. And then I believe Belize opened the doors in the fifties. Oh. So there are all kinds of churches there. That's a long answer to your question, which probably wasn't even a question, <laughs> but you know, the idea of like, it would be so fun to actually explore where they're going and how there's, how a new community sets up because without a, without a minister, these settlements will fail because right. they have to, you know, baptize Mary and Barry and if yeah. you're going to fail. And so these isolated communities need the church leadership in the birth of a church and um, kind of interesting. However, Stony Ridge was what my editor felt was a good idea to create this little harmonious, fictitious, everybody would love to live in a town like this and feel as if you belong and everybody knows you and, you know, your grandparents had planted those at that apple orchard and, and all that, all that kind of longing we have for the pastoral life in the small community. Yeah. So honestly, now we're getting two people's advice because this is something that you hear, you know, find something that you really enjoy writing about and write in series, write enough of it that you can create kind of a brand for yourself, for your name, uh, so that it gives you a larger body of work that is for one audience instead of you know, 10 books for eight different audiences, that's harder to have a career that way. It's harder to build momentum. So it yeah. sounds like that's what your editor's idea was, was to help you to create a body of work that builds a career. Yes, I think the, I think the authentic with the older Amish was something she had, was looking for. I, and I really credit her. She's a very, very savvy editor and knows the industry well. So that's what, where the door opened for me. And I, I feel like when the door opens, you know, where God is calling you, go, go for it, enjoy, and do your best in that. Now that doesn't mean though, that that, that doesn't mean you're only that kind of an author. I think, you know, good right. writing is something that belongs everywhere, even, even in your church. I do a lot of writing for our church with community, um, working with the director of community communications and all. So I think like good writing is needed everywhere. Just yeah. Everywhere. Yeah, definitely.
don't limit yourself in, you know, branding is a great thing and riding a wave. I, I'm very grateful that Amish fiction genre has been really significant. It hasn't been just a quick rocket and down, right. um, but it is a flooded market. When I first started, I think there were, I think there were maybe six to eight authors and last count. And I think it's blown way past this last time I counted over 86. Wow. I know, you know, and every publishing house, ones you've never heard of self-publishing. I mean, it's, it's just, everybody's jumping to go on it. And I, you know, I did too, so I can't fault anybody. Right. a very saturated market. (laughs) But then that's another piece of advice. I mean, part of the reason why you were interested in the market, I mean, yes, you saw an opportunity, but, but you had a genuine interest and personal connection to the kind of story that you would write because of your grandfather. So another thing maybe for authors to look at is what kinds of personal connections do I have to things that are either um, interesting in general, or there's something else like going on in the world that I could connect the story to that would make it more, um, what's the word, you know, like more uh, uh, applicable to read now. I think that's a really good point. I mean, when you think of, of the medical history in your family and the, I, I have a nephew who is hemophilia. I mean, just the things you know and learn about because they are part of your story yeah. can be woven into a book and you bring it reality. You bring, you know, something that is so significant. So I think it's, um, I think you make a wonderful point. Like don't, don't assume you're this when God might be calling you. Like I had thought I was not a, a fiction writer until I just tried. <laughs> you know, and it's amazing what, that doesn't mean it was the world's best book, but like just the idea that, that go, go forth. There's um, an acronym for fail, which I just love. First attempt in learning. Oh, I like that. I haven't heard that one. Isn't that great? First attempt in learning. Yeah. And that trying something new or out of the box or out of where your comfort zone is, is creating neurons in your brain and stretching you. And, you know, as well as just, it's, it's okay to be a beginner. It's okay to try. It's okay to fail, you know, fail in a way. Um, But to keep, keep at it, keep going, keep improving your craft, keep studying authors you admire and see where are what do they do that you like? For example, ending chapters on your, where your readers on their toes. I mean, I, I would love to have, I, someday I would love to be, have a whole workshop on ending a chapter, but it would take so much work you know, to, yeah. to study everyone who does it well and then try to, to capture it because that, just that technique alone is, I think, that would improve all of your writing because everything right. moves forward to the very end. What happens next? Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't think of specific titles right now, but I know that I have occasionally been reading books where about halfway through, exhausted and not able to function as well in my normal life, I would tell myself, okay, when you get to the end of the chapter, read the next two pages of the next chapter, because like that, that was the pattern I was seeing. Like that was the thing I had to know what happens next. And then you're just going to have to stop in between paragraphs and pick it up next time on, on page two of the chapter. 
I was listening to a talk the other day that said um, leaders are readers and that they had done a study of CEOs and found that CEOs read more than the average person by a huge amount. That's right. So one of the things they recommended, and this might help with your thinking because this is what I tend to do too much of, reading becomes sedative reading. It's the end of the day, end of the night. And they said, if you can shift reading half an hour to 45 minutes to a different time of the day when yeah. you are alert, you will read whatever, like a book a week. You know, break it down in just 45 minutes a day. Wow. 200 words a minute is the average reader. And you will start reading a book a week, which I thought that is such a great tip. You know, yeah. I tend to just read at the end of the night and I, I'm just like, it's like a shift. You know, I, Yeah. Like, yeah, it's funny because now um, we, you were talking about brains and neurons. I love brains. I, if I, I was with uh, some people, I can't remember. I think it was people at work. And we were all saying, you know, if I were um, 10 years younger or in all different ages of people, um, or if I were 18 right now, you know, what sorts of things would I study? And I was like, I would totally be a neuroscientist. Oh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I just can't get enough brains. And even though, you know, this isn't a Christian show, I know I have uh, listeners who are Christians with listeners who aren't. Um, I think pretty much every listener knows that I am. And I try to just present it as a part of my own personal life. And, but also like it's a show about writing. That's what we're really here talking about. Um, but at some point I really want to write a book that is showcasing, um, different uh, passages in the Bible and the neuroscience that supports the truth of the passage. You know, like... Well, here's something fascinating. Yeah. So I was just listening to a TED Talk yeah. about the importance of awe, A-W-E. Ah. And it was, it was a completely scientific talk. It was a researcher studying awe. So this is exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And she found three things that I think are fascinating. One, when you are caught in a moment of awe, and let's think of you in Sweden with the Nor Northern Lights. Yeah. Or Yosemite or, you know, a thunderstorm or whatever. Three things happen. One, you feel small, you feel insignificant, and you feel good. Interesting. A positive emotion. And all of a sudden, daily life drops down the, and you are, are caught in something bigger than yourself. And this, again, you know, this doesn't, this is science. This doesn't have to be, but it's so biblical that, yeah. because Kitty, this is going to be our heavenly experience to think we are worshiping God, small, insignificant, and so right, you know, yeah. right where we're meant to be. It yeah. just caught up in this wonderful feeling of, oh my goodness. <laughs> That's a really interesting way to look at it, that, that when we get to heaven, worshiping God might be like watching the Northern Lights or standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon or looking at the thousand-year-old tree in the National Forest. Yeah. That's pretty <laughs> amazing. <laughs> cool? There was something in Yosemite. I'm from Northern California. And in Yosemite, at the end of February, if all conditions are right, which they happen to have been this year, but years and years go by where it isn't, if there's enough water flowing, and if the skies are clear, for about six minutes a day, the sunset hits a waterfall called horsetail, and it looks like it's on fire. It's called a firefall. 
you could Google it or YouTube it. It's stunning. I mean, just people come from all over the world to try to get a, to sight of this firefall. Wow. It's, it is astounding, Kitty, to see this literally looks like fire coming down. And it occurred to me, like, talk about awe. Like this has been there for thousands of years and probably Native Americans saw it at points. And then another decade would go by. It was just a crane, you know, rainy, cloudy, snowy week and they missed it. Yeah. But just for nature, just for the creation and worship of God, all, all nature sings. And I don't know, I just thought that was such a beautiful. <laughs> oh, that is, that's amazing. Oh, wow. And you're sitting there, you know, with this fireplace behind you. And I'm just like, oh, there's just such a sense of comfort and, and, you know, awe and comfort and pushing boundaries. Like these are the things I want to be in my stories. And I think the times that I get stuck and I'm just like, what am I doing right now? Like, and I, and I'm just, I'm kind of thinking I'm not really writing. And I'm just like, cause I, I can't quite get the the awe and the comfort and the, and the pushing like all onto the page in the right way yet. <laughs> oh, this is, that's part of life. Like writing. I mean, I think I just, I call it like, I try to hit a word count every day, no matter what. Yeah. It's good, but sometimes it is, but mostly not, but it doesn't <laughs> the plot. Like you're just advancing the story, even in your head. It just subconsciously, the story's kind of settling in. Yeah. You know, things kind of, take you in different directions and all of a sudden it's like a spark and it's like, yes, I got it. I got what I need, <laughs> but it doesn't come just by sitting there. <laughs> See, and that is part of the reason why I'm doing the podcast because somebody will say something like that, that probably a whole bunch of people listening are like, you're right. You're right. And I know that. And now I'm just going to go back and do the thing that I know is the right thing to do, which is just keep putting words on the paper until I have that aha moment going, oh, this is what I meant. And not worry. I, I don't know why there's something about my personality. I'm always like um, afraid of waste. I'm afraid of wasting time, wasting words, wasting these pages and throwing them away. And I think that I just need to like decide to switch my mind to a different direction and think of it maybe as joy of discovery or something like that. I think of it as piano scales. <gasps> That's a good one. I totally get that because, yeah. oh my gosh, I practiced so many hours when I was a kid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just that, that you're keeping your fingers nimble, yeah. you know, um, and that's what's happening as you just push forward with a junky first draft. You know, it's just, it, it's kind of just the piano scales. So I love that. I am totally putting that in the show notes so that if anybody's reading, they're like, piano scales. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's not wasted time. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I could talk to you all night. <laughs> I know it is night for you. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was daylight when I started talking to you, but now it's, it's the, the, the darkness has come, but it's coming a little later every day. So this is yes. good. <laughs> I know. In fact, the saddest day of the year for my husband is like June 21st and 22nd. <laughs> no, it was here and it's gone. <laughs> oh, well, maybe sometime you guys can come over here and he can have like a 22-hour a, a day and be really happy. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, actually like the Northern Lights, I was thinking after I saw that TED Talk that wouldn't that be sort of a, a neat thing to try to even build into every day? Or at least as you're planning vacations that you are seeking awe, you know, it, yeah. whether it's the Northern Lights, which would be a huge bucket list, or whether it's even listening to a certain piece of music that is 
you know, one of those like sheep may safely graze by Bach where you just kind of, oh, you're just kind of caught in that moment. Music is a wonderful, yeah. awe-inspiring thing. Yeah. But it can be part of every day, sometimes looking at the tiniest flower or a bumblebee. I mean, it, it should be something we strive for. Yeah. Each day have a moment. I like it. Kind of the stop and smell the roses, but only really looking for the things to stop and look at. Yeah. I love that. Well, Suzanne, this is awesome. I hate to keep you too much longer because I know you probably have some word count that you need to do today. <laughs> so um, let's just talk about Mending Fences. As again, you said it's book one of the Deacons family. Yes. In fact, one funny story about the cover. Yeah. that I didn't finish. I wasn't sure if a male was going to do well on a cover. You know, I just, yeah. I've never had it before and I wasn't quite sure. And I went to Arkansas to a library event to do um, in Bentonville, wonderful library. And these darling young librarians came rushing up to me and they said, the book arrived and we all just passed it around looking at this guy. We think he's so cute. And I just thought, <laughs> Oh, okay. Okay, good. <laughs> so I think they did a good job with the cover. Yeah. Um, and, and yes. you know, I, I was just going to say, you know, about men on covers. I know that it's a, it's a really big thing right now. Eventually it will, you know, go away and something else will be a big thing. But to have the, the bare-chested men on some of the uh, oh, sexier book oh, yeah. covers. <laughs> and the thing is, is that... <laughs> And it's a personality thing. Everybody likes a different thing. But I am far more captivated to just a regular dressed man with that charming kind of twinkling look in his eye like, like Luke has on that cover rather than just seeing everything that's under the shirt and going, okay, now I've seen it all, so I don't care anymore. <laughs> I know. I know sometimes when they make women sound like they're men, like they're hungry in that, you know, fleshy way. It's like, I don't think that's what most, that's what most of my friends are. You know? Yeah. yeah. There's something about just the eyes, especially when the eyes. Yes. Yeah. So much I love the eyes. <laughs> okay. So that's book one, Mending Fences. And yeah. then book two, that it may be coming out this year. Book two is coming out in the fall and it's going to be called Stitches in Time. Uh, and it's actually about, Luke will carry through the whole series. You know, okay. a lot of this is his story of, of redemption, of growing up. And he, it, it's actually a story where, I can't say too much other than foster children become part of the Amish community. And the fun of that is that you bring in characters who are not Amish, you know, who, who look, you can almost use their eyes and mouth to describe what they're seeing and how right. they Amish act and that kind of thing. So... Um, but that's that. that that's a great book. I, I really love because again, the Amish and the Mennonite do foster. They do it quietly, but they near, um, I think they're near Lancaster, not not Philadelphia, but there's a um, there's a women's penitentiary where the Mennonites have a connection and foster children, but they stay connected to the mother. They're not trying to convert children into becoming Mennonites, but they are trying to work with the mother so that when she is released, she is in a better place to be a really whole and healthy mother. So oh. they do these quiet things that are so wonderful. And then now what I'm working on is book three, where I'm going to take this even further. And I'm, it's still a little too, um, I'm, I haven't really nailed it down, but I, I love this idea that, that they are caring for those who are 
not cared for in our world because I think oh. this is what our churches need to be doing is providing answers for those yeah. who are are unloved and don't have a home and don't have a family instead of just we're known for judging and that shouldn't be what we're known for <laughs> yeah known for loving so that's yeah. um, that's a story now putting that aside I do have a book coming out in next month <gasps> you do what yeah. do you have totally different genre. So when we were talking about branding, I thought, yeah, but sometimes it's fun to find a whole different brand. And this will be a completely new contemporary romance. It's called On a Summer Tide. And it's set in Maine. It's a story of three young women, their sisters. The series is called Three Sisters Island. And their father has been a radio announcer for his entire life. You know how some men just have that baritone voice, that beautiful you know, just born with it. Yeah. That's, he was on the road all the time because he was actually with a, a major baseball team and then caught laryngitis and his voice never came back. So all of a sudden he's without a career. His three daughters are quite estranged from each other for different reasons, not in a hostile way, but just in them drifting. Yeah. And he feels we've got to make a change. Something has to happen. And he ends up buying this bankrupt little island off the coast of Maine with the big idea of bringing his family together. And it totally backfires, but it's a great story of, of Maine. And I think after a winter like we have had, I'm just, even the cover just takes you to Maine. And you just feel like, oh, if only it were summer, and if only it were, I were on the coast of Maine. And kind of a Calgon take me away moment. But um, yeah. I think it's going to be exciting. So I wanted to just mention that because I am jumping genres. And I, yeah. I hope with a try. Nice. Okay. Tell us the, the name of it again. And do you know the exact date? Yes. April 30. And it's on a summer tide. Wonderful. Um, and beautiful. is it standalone or part of a series? Part of a series called Three Sisters Island. And each sister will take a turn as the main character. Right, right. That makes sense. Duh. <laughs> Just very different, you know. But one of the things my editor wanted me to do is to take the same idea of the characters, the quirky characters and the, you know, the, the, community and the small town and take it into a contemporary look. So if you like that, I think you'll love this. It's, it's a lot of the same without the bonnets, you know? Nice. Oh, wow. All right. This is super exciting. So listeners are probably going to want to know more about you and your books. Where's the best place or places to find you online or in person or wherever? So www.suzannewoodsfisher.com. And I'm try to answer my own mail within 24 hours as often as I can. If I get behind, it's, it's unintentional. It's just a snowball. But, and then I'm on Facebook, um, hanging out there a lot, or at least checking in. And um, Instagram, which I haven't done in a, a little bit. I need to get better about it. But Instagram is a place I like to post a lot. So um, that's, those are kind of the places that I am. And I love to connect with readers. It, I type in a tiny little laundry room with two big dogs and <laughs> so neat to just like face to face with you even though we're probably nine or ten thousand miles apart yeah and, you know how many miles are we? maybe seven thousand I don't know I need to look because um I I talk to people like this and I'm like I don't know but it feels like ten thousand <laughs> yeah, yeah and then um you know it just to get out and have an event and actually see people face to face it it makes the writing so much more valuable. And then the feedback is great too. Like even that reviewer who doesn't like snakes, it's like, okay, I get that. I, I understand. And I need the feedback. It makes me a better writer. Yeah. 
Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us again and sharing so much. I feel like I get so much out of talking to you and I, I'm sure that listeners do too. No, Kitty, you have a wonderful way with words. I can see why you're, you do well at what you're doing both. And that's not easy to be both, you know, the interviewer and then have the gift of writing too. It's often one or the other, but you, I think have both. So you, thanks. thank you for that gift. That is so kind. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you. And let's talk to you again when you've got, um, you know, one of you, I'm going to have to give, give some other people a ch chance to be on the show, but I can see you being one of my people that's, that's on a lot. So we'll have to pick one of the other series and bring you back again. I love it. Thanks, Kitty. Take care.